Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 29th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is out this week with me as always. Actually, not this week. He'll be back on Thursday. But with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And in Noah's stead, AI scholar, former Fox News decision desk member and political editor, uh, columnist at the Dispatch, and author of the brilliant new book, Broken oh. News, our friend Chris Dyerwald. Hi, Chris. I am so pleased to be back with you guys. I hope I don't have to write a book just to get back on uh, this podcast, which is so good. And I also want to say that while I am always thrilled to join Christine in this, I am particularly thrilled because my heart was made glad when I saw the news that uh, she was joining me at the American Enterprise Institute as a fellow. And uh, I have not had the opportunity to welcome you on board yet. And I'm, I could not be happier that you're here. Thank you, know, you so I, much. <laughs> you know, Christine, I don't think that we have actually fully sort of gone into this with. I haven't the had listeners. my reveal. Yeah, where's my reveal? So, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mean to. I didn't no, no, mean to no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's public information. No problem. So, so uh, Christine, who uh, has been was uh, has been on staff as a full staff member at Commentary for. Was it two years? I don't even uh, three years. years. Two years, something like that. So time, uh, time is all merged yeah. together. So, <laughs> so in a diabolical move that <laughs> friends ordinarily do not stage against other friends, our friends <laughs> at the American Enterprise Institute, primarily uh, Yuval Levin, uh, poached Christine. It was a. It was a sneak attack. It was Bob Ursay <laughs> moving the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis <laughs> in the middle of the night. Here Ooh, out of nowhere, Christine is going to AI. But then it turns out, as my son, for some insane reason, my 12-year-old son is now watching Hannah Montana from beginning to end. Don't start with me. I don't know why. It, this is some form of torture. Yeah, this is a punishment that is going this on is, here. Yeah, this is a punishment. Uh, but like Hannah Montana, this is the best, maybe this is the best of both worlds. Christine gets to do her scholarly work while continuing on the podcast and as our media commentary columnist, which is why you may have noticed the change in her designation from senior writer to media commentary columnist. You, you, uh, you are actually, I believe, going in for your getting your key card and you're having your sexual harassment training and everything. Well, I did it all. Yes. Today. I did it all. Pro or con. Pro or con. Which way? <laughs> yeah, Which way? I know. See, okay. I'm still ambivalent about it. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's on a spectrum, yeah. sexual harassment okay. training. Yeah. Um, no, I right. start, my official start day is Thursday, the beginning of September, but I've, I've got an office. I've started to move some stuff in and yeah, I'm very excited. Okay. I've eaten my, I've eaten lunch in the dining room. So I'm well, okay. stop gushing right after this. Let me gush one yes. more gush. Which yes. Is... Go ahead, please. Christine is so great because she has such uh, intellect, but combined with such empathy uh, and her ability to see the world through different people's eyes and think about these things in important ways is incredibly valued. And I know you've all just famous for being just a sneak and a, just a, a oh, man, it's the of man no is character. A... 
Just, you know, that's he's a real anchovy, that guy. He is. Thank he you. Is. That's he, very kind words. Thank yes. You. If you are a good Game of Thrones fan, he is the little finger of the right. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, a great episode of House of the Dragon last night, really like literally season four or five of Game of Thrones level. Great episode. That's the end of my nerding out on Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. But if you are watching it, and you were, and even Matt Connetti, uh, Game of Thrones uh, scholar, who was disappointed with the first episode, texted me this morning to say he thought the second episode was great. Anyway, we're going to stop there with the nonsense and get into even more nonsense. The nonsense being the coverage since Friday of the twists and turns in the uh, Trump search warrant uh, redacted affidavit, search warrant, responses thing, uh, and the way the press has covered it, which I think then dovetails nicely into Chris's book. So I'm going to posit this. So the stories on Friday, once they released the redacted uh, search warrant, are that breathlessly, Trump had in his possession classified documents. This was reported on Friday and Saturday as though this were new news, by which I mean what we learned from the redacted document has nothing to do with what happened at the search warrant raid or afterward. It only has to do with what material were supplied, the Justice Department supplied to this judge, this magistrate, in order to get the search warrant. So in story after story after story for weeks after the search of Mar-a-Lago, we had already been told time and time again that the Justice Department had found in the material that it had gotten through the normal process of negotiate or whatever, what the process of negotiation with the Trump people, they had found documents at Mar-a-Lago marked top secret or, or, or higher. They didn't think that they had gotten all of them and that there were more that were still there and that they wanted to go get them. So the news over the weekend was literally not news. We, they were recapitulating from the redacted search warrant, the reason for the search warrant, which we were told hours after the raid was staged because of the search warrant. Um, now, I... The, the redacted affidavit, John. The re, Excuse me, the redacted affidavit. I apologize. Right. The redacted affidavit that led to the search warrant that was then executed. So... Two things happened the night of the of the search. One was that in, in the immediate aftermath, everybody from left to right said either they, oh my God, they got the goods, they have the goods, they're at the end stage of being able to charge him, and they're going in because they know what they need, and they're just going into this closet, they're going to get this piece of paper, come out, that says whatever it is they needed to say, and then they'll charge him. And then other people, particularly the right, said, they better get the goods, because if they haven't got the goods, what is going on here is we've moved into a banana republic in which the 
present president is now going at the jugular using the legal system of the previous president in an effort to stymie his reelection bid. And that is not America and we're in hell here. And uh, they don't have the goods, it turns out. And the reason I say they don't have the goods, and then I will stop monologizing here, is a quote from the New York Times' lead story today. Quote, prosecutors working on the investigation into Mr. Trump's handling of classified information are nowhere near making a recommendation to Mr. Garland, according to people with knowledge of the inquiry. Court filings describe the work as continuing with the possibility of more witness interviews and other investigative steps to come. So if I am interpreting this correctly, it was a fishing expedition. Now, maybe there's a lot of fit. It's a fishing expedition in an area where the fish are just jumping and you just have to throw your line in and you can catch a hundred fish. But the they got him and this is the end game clearly is not true. So Chris, as the author of Broken News, forgive me not for not citing your subtitle because I can never remember subtitles, <laughs> just out, right, from, is yeah, it yeah. Center, from Center, Center Street? Street. That's right. Okay, go to Amazon and buy it. How do you, reading these, this coverage, the breathless mainstream media coverage of the affidavit, do you look at this and say that this fulfills the mandate of your title? Is there something broken in the way this news is being covered and then transmitted to readers and the public? Yeah, and I think you hit it perfectly when you said, <clears throat> excuse me, that the both ends of the mainstream media spectrum, right? So basically we go from Fox and over to I don't know what the what the left post on that is, but let's say uh MSNBC. MSNBC. Yeah. So and everything in between. Um the need to make this into I wrote a whole piece about stop using the crazy words to talk about this unprecedented. Da, 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 da. I was open from the beginning of this, that this was not that big of a story. I mean, it's a big story, but it could be a beef with the archives and Trump is Trump and whatever. And then they got to impasse and they went and did it. Okay. But <clears throat> what I have read from the beginning, read and watched from the beginning is that uh, partisan media needed this to be on the end, right? That we are always, the doomsday clock, we're always one minute away from doomsday. There is a yearning for banana republicanism uh, in the press that want, there's a desire, and I understand why. Um, I, the, the urge to sensationalize, the urge to overstate, the urge to overhype this stuff, uh, especially when you're young and you're trying to make a name for yourself, I totally understand it. But you would think that the New York Times would have learned from uh, the Mueller probe and the Russia stuff. You would think that those folks would have learned, which is if you dribble and speculate. There was a, uh, a headline I saw. I did. I confess I did not read the story because I refused to click the link. Uh, but I, it may have been either the Daily Beast or the Nation. I'm not sure. And the headline was something to the effect of, like, look out. Uh, the the Mar-a-Lago search may not be the end for Trump. I'm like, 
I'm sorry, what? You were so far past uh, this is definitely the end for Donald Trump that somebody is writing a counterintuitive piece for your publication that says, now, hold on a second, guys. He may not be frog marched out of Mar-a-Lago and, and sent to Gitmo. And I think the, um, the lesson of, and I write about this in the book, I think the lesson of the Mueller probe and all of that stuff is if you had taken what was in the Mueller probe and presented it whole, right? Just at the beginning, if you'd said there would never a leak, there was never a story, boom. It's the Pentagon Papers, right? It's a huge, like, oh my gosh, and they did what? And this, this is all very interesting. But the people who, maybe I, let me sum it up this way. We are often told about the partisanship of whether it's Fox or whether it's MSNBC about how they're they're supporting this party, but they're not really helping the ambitions of the party. Democrats were not helped by what the left-leaning media did around the Mueller probe, right? It actually diminished the final product because we were like, oh yeah, well, we already knew all of that. And what about all of the leaks and hype and garbage? So I think Mueller's team failed by leaking, uh, which was a huge thing. And obviously Adam Schiff, I mean, holy crocono, this guy is a boat anchor around the Democratic Party's neck. Um, <clears throat> but all of the leaking and all of the hyper-speculation meant that the stuff that was important looked like it was unimportant. I think we're seeing this play out again. Christine, you know, um, we have another uh, element of the reporting over the weekend um, that pushed one of your buttons, which is, um, Trump, advised by an op-ed or something, decided to ask for a special master to be a sort of uh, intermediary between him and the Justice Department on what which documents were, in fact, documents that it was perfectly right and proper for him to have in his possession after the presidency and which were not. And uh, there's a judge in Florida who ruled on Friday or said, didn't rule, but indicated that she was open to the idea of a special master, which has caused two responses. Number one, she was appointed by Trump. So therefore, anything she might say or do is, of course, completely, uh, you know, compromised. Trump judge, Cohen. Trump judge, right. And the other is, boy, this may slow things down a lot. Now, here's the interesting aspect of the slow things down a lot that I think you 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 figured out in your in our text chain, which is who ben cui bono, who benefits at this moment from a slowdown in the process of the determination of whether or not Trump violated these three laws in holding confidential documents at Mar-a-Lago. How do you, what do you think? So you, you had a theory, basically. I mean, I I think, it, and this is, of course, wild speculation, which is what's so much fun to do on the podcast every day. But uh, I think that right now that would actually benefit the Democrats to have this, you know, uh, thing, this cloud hanging over Trump, right? So Trump's come back, he's reacted, he's, it, it has galvanized his, you know, diehard loyalist, yes, and that will have some effect. But 
I think it, in a weird way, it's sort of what was happening to Hillary in the in the lead up to the last, you know, to 2016, where there's just a cloud hanging over you. You know, it's just it, it's something that people who were who were maybe perhaps seeing the Republican candidate in their midterm election as being separate from Trump is now going to kind of it's all going to mash together again because he is, you know, de facto the leader of the Republican Party still. So I think it's bad for Trump. Right. In in the near term, in the long term, perhaps not. I was struck, though, by um, how uh, how much what, what Chris was saying, I think, completely correctly about how this plays out in the media, the actual real world effects this has on voters. So one of the things that struck me in the Washington Post story today about all of this was uh, they obtained an email message from from someone at the National Archives who said we're getting absolutely inundated with all these hostile emails. What was interesting about how they described the hostility, though, is that it's MAGA types saying, how dare you attack a former president? Trump is God, you know, shame on you. And anti-Trump types saying, thank God you're finally going to take him down, National Archives. I mean, it was it, the absolute hostility on both sides and the the appeal to institutions that otherwise should be apolitical in their exercise of judgment and in their, and in their behavior. Um, it, 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 it's disheartening to me. Um, I do think, though, that the longer this goes on, given Trump's inability and, and lack of discipline to kind of stay on a message and, and understand what's going on is not good. The, the idea of a special master seems to me, I, I don't know, legally, maybe that's something that's that's pretty common. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but it just it will drag it out. And it does seem to me to from his perspective, he sees that as a tool he can manip further manipulate to get out his story about how he's being persecuted and, you know, perhaps to kind of keep certain documents out of the public eye. Yeah, the only the only party who loses here are non-Trumpy Republicans, right? Everyone else is good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would just say regarding the, cl the cloud that, that um, hung over Hillary, James Comey came out and sort of dispensed with that cloud pretty quickly. You know, um, and one thing that's that's becoming clearer, uh, especially as this is since the redacted affidavit and the 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 indication that this was a, a, a witch hunt, um, is that not only are they going to have to sift through all this to try to find something, they're going to have to try to find something that is significantly more transgressive than than what Hillary Clinton did with, with in regard to her having uh, 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 electronic documents uh, in her possession that 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 were vanished. Okay, but Comey dissipated the cloud and then he reseeded the cloud on October 28th by reopening the investigation which he did because he had promised Congress that he would do that if he found something new and of course you know what what james comey wants is just what is good for the republic at any given <laughs> moment and they are coterminous there is nothing <clears throat> in james comey's soul or his actions that cannot be seen as the most noble act any human being has ever practiced so he is the you know he ended up basically being the most important player in the twenty. 16 election and Merrick Garland might end up being the most important player in the 2020 election. Uh, and Do you mean in midterms, you mean in midterms or for the quadrennial? No, I meant he, uh, Merrick Garland. I'm sorry. Yeah, I meant 2024 year? actually. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. So like this shouldn't be happening. The justice department should not be playing a central role in our elections and it's bad. And that is 
I, banana republics maybe not the right term. The weaponization of the legal system against uh, leading political figures and the other is 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 not healthy, and it is a feature of many other uh, democracies or places that are run by elections, and it's not good. Like you don't want it, and and we have a system that seemed to militate against that because of the constitutional structure of the executive branch, but we seem to be moving beyond that. I'm I'm struck by having said all this. Trump, I think, was taken it. We're saying like the Mueller probe was a failure and this was a failure. Over time, I think you can really make the case that the const, the four years of cloud over Trump's head, much of which he created, you know, was a smoke that he, you know, smoke that went into the atmosphere that he created, the greenhouse gas effect that he created for himself, but is what made him lose the election in 2020. Like, but you, you can't say that it was just him. Unless you say that his behavior around the Mueller probe, you know, was part of it. Like there was the impeachment, there were there was the Mueller probe, there was all this other stuff, and Democrats and the liberal media kept a cla- a different kind of cloud around Trump's head that reminded people every single day that this was a new kind of figure, a chaos driver, all of that. And 81 million people voted against him. It's a little hard to say that 81 million people voted for Biden. I mean, it's a little hard to say, boy, that guy whom we never saw for six months because he was in the basement. I wanted him to be president, man. Let me tell you. So it was successful. And, you know, two years of a cloud like this that reminds people who came out and voted against Trump in 2020 that they're probably going to want to do that in 2024. I don't think that's dumb. That's a dumb Machiavellian, even if it's not a strategy, even if no one's actually speaking it out loud at the White House. Well, Democrats who I talk to are thrilled because they think that the search uh, cements Trump's place as the Republican frontrunner for 2024, and they think that Trump is the is the best one for the Republicans to nominate uh, for them to be able to win again. And this is, uh, you know, it's a it's a long way. We have a long way to go. There's certainly truth in it uh, in the short term, as Republicans have this visceral response: uh, leave our guy alone. But if you listen to the language from Republicans over time since the FBI went to Mar-a-Lago, they've, the shoulders have softened, right? It's like, well, let's reserve. I, I heard Glenn Youngkin, and it was basically like, well, let's not rush into anything. And Mike Pence is out. Saying, well, now, hold on. Uh, let's, think, you know, let's not demonize the FBI. So I think what is happening is Trump's comparison of himself to Hillary Clinton and the standard to Hillary Clinton is not helpful to Trump politically in the long term. Because while it is uh, helpful in a short-term Twitter knife fight kind of argumentation where you say, see what they did to Hillary, and this is how they're doing me, you see how they do me, that is a short-term tactic that has some uh, appeal. But in the longer run, I think you're exactly right. Republican primary voters. So a lot of the Republican, a lot of people who voted, the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump, uh, a lot of them weren't voting for Donald Trump. They were voting against Joe Biden. And for those marginally attached Republicans, uh, 
and probably some hardcore conservative Republicans, the idea of having to relitigate the many, the many, many idiocies of Donald Trump's political career uh, is does not sound fun. And this is what the DeSantis argument fundamentally is. I'm a pugilist. I'm pugnacious like Trump. I'm rough and tough like Trump. And I'm a populist like Trump. But I'm I have a good record as governor in Florida and I am a professional and I can do this stuff in a way that 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 you'll get this the desired result without the baggage. OK, I want to I want to talk about how how these themes echo uh, in your book. But first, let me talk to you guys about our first advertiser today, Bolin Branch uses the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness and better night's sleep. Their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. Our own Noah Rothman has these sheets. He can't stop talking about them. Right now, he's on vacation. I'm sure he is missing those buttery, soft, softer with every wash sheets that he has from Bolin Branch. Highest quality threads on earth. Threads so luxurious, they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. They feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable. Over 10,000 stellar reviews. You'll immediately feel the difference. They're 100% free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals involved in their making, manufacture, or shipping. Bolin Branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BolinBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And it's time again for me to tell you that you need to go to Bonson.com, that's B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com, and sign up for David Bonson's free course in the history, theory, and practical application of economics. 30 lectures with an amazing syllabus. All you got to do is put down your name and your email address. It's free. This is a this is an educational, an unparalleled educational opportunity for people who listen to this podcast and may either have forgotten a lot of the economics that they learned or never really got a grounding in basic theory and practical application. Um, there, there are readings, there are quizzes, there are tests. You know, it's all to get you up to speed on this most important of subjects. So please go to B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com. That's look, look to your, uh, look right in the middle, uh, at the top of the page for the words economics course, click on it and sign up today. David runs an investment management firm with three and a half billion dollars under management. So, you know, he knows wherever he speaks and he's a rare person in this field in that he is grounded in a philosophical understanding of the connections between economics theology, philosophy, and what what human flourishing uh, really is. So that's Bonson.com and David Bonson's economics course. So Chris Starwalt, your book posits that to an, un- to yes, I'm going to use the word unprecedented degree, <laughs> the media, the media in the last, let's say, really 10 years, because you sort of dated, I think, pretty much to the total collapse of ad revenue yeah. uh, in, in in media spaces that really hit in like 2010, that uh, media realized that the only way for them to drive viewers and readers and clickers 
to participate in their product was a, a new kind of raw naked appeal to emotion and that the emotion is almost exclusively negative. And so uh, everybody gets to go to their, you know, retreat to their corners and spend the day getting enraged by media companies who profit from their rage. And now, and so you lay it out very systematically and it's a really wonderful case. The one question that I have for you, because, well, before I go that, so lay out for me how the button pushing happens and what people who are even listening to this What's happening to them that they may not even really understand is happening to them in the media that they consume? Well, you know the the old line: um, if you're not paying for the product, uh, you are not the audience. You are the product, right? Because uh, what advertising based uh, media, what advertising based news does, is gather an audience and sell its attention to uh, people who sell pre lubricated pocket catheters. Uh, fluffy pillows, uh, and uh, gold. It's the, um, and that is a, that bargain worked differently in the era of broadcasting, which is you say, where does, and when I say broadcasting, I mean, I include print media in that too. Where does it end? I don't know. The peak year for uh, print advertising revenue was 2005. uh, And then it declined by something like, I, it was like a 90% decline over the next three to five years. It was a, the, the, the earth collapsed. Uh, and that revenue was built on the, on the broad model, right? We're going to try to attract a broad enough audience um, and that we can, so we have to be, if you want to think about it in, in the, the peak of this strange bubble that the American media existed in, in the early to mid 1970s, something like two-thirds of American households were tuned into one of the three major network newscasts every evening. Uh, And that meant that even if, well, actually, John, you'll appreciate the the comparison here. You know, the story of CBS and the the Hillbillies, right? So the Tiffany Network, CBS, it's there. We're this very high-end, very... uh, 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 theatrical performances and, uh, you know, live from uh, Lincoln Center or whatever. And then somehow the Beverly Hillbillies got on TV and they found out that all of Appalachia and the South was had been woefully underserved and it became a smash hit and it, it came and took over the network. Um, it was important if you were if your goal was to get more than a third of the whole news audience, you couldn't possibly be just left or just right. You had to have the appearance of, if not the presence of, fairness. Uh, And I wanna also point out the difference between objectivity and fairness. Um, Objectivity is not a real thing, right? Because uh, some of us, like Christine, are very, very good at putting themselves in other people's shoes and very, very good at seeing the world in other ways. But we bring our implicit bias to everything, right? We are we are ourselves. And I tell young journalists when they're starting out, this is like jury duty, right? Uh, you are bringing yourself here to this story. When you come to cover a story, when you come to talk about something, obviously it's going to be informed by your experiences and what you know about these things. That's normal. But what is important is fairness. Fairness is different 
than pure objectivity. And aspirational fairness is really the ticket because we cannot ever be completely fair. We can't for the same reasons we can't be objective, but we can aspire to fairness. It's the right target. And fairness means I'm going to, uh, Brett Stevens coined the term uh, in his uh, remembrance of Charles Krauthammer, that he was going to make Krauthammer uh, a verb. And to Krauthammer is to make your opponent's argument better than they could make it for themselves and still defeat it anyway. So uh, fairness exists in good uh, opinion journalism and in good straight news. Fairness is a concept that says, I'm not going to build straw men. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to do that stuff. I know I'm far afield from your question, but I'll just say the appetite and market for aspirationally fair journalism, even opinion journalism, when you go from broadcasting where you have these huge chunks of the country that major media outlets are catering to when that goes down to when uh i'll I'll shut up right after i say this the uh many comparisons of tucker carlson to father coughlin which is a, a favorite trope uh a favorite trope when you look at the numbers about father coughlin's reach uh in the 19 in the mid 1930s ahead of the 1936 primary uh, Democratic primaries. And there's great research in the book about how Coughlin affected the FDR vote in 36 and all that stuff. But Coughlin w- was speaking to an audience 10 times larger than Tucker Carlson's, 15 times larger in terms of a percentage of the country that was tuned in. We have, we spend a lot of time, uh, We ha- I hate media criticism so much because so much of it is so stupid because if uh, with if uh, what's his name that just lost the show at CNN, Brian, uh, if Brian, Brian, Seltzer. Friend, if Seltzer. Brian Seltzer says if he says that uh, Fox and Friends is a terrible TV show, it's the worst TV show of all time. Who heard it? It doesn't matter. He's saying it to people who would never watch Fox and Friends. And certainly the people who watch Fox and Friends don't care what Brian Stelter thinks about Fox and Friends. In fact, they like it when Brian Stelter attacks Fox and Friends. So. I have tried here to be loving and I have tried here to be aspirationally fair. So the reason that, so, you know, you point out, so everyone goes into their silos and people are fed material all day to make them angry. And Twitter, of course, is the, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe it's the starter or it's like the kindling or something, or, or it's where you take the fire and you transmit it to other places. So it's just, look what they said now, look what Tucker did now. Look what there's a, there's a guy I mentioned before named Ron Filipowski, who has a very effective Twitter feed. And he just spends all day finding clips from Marjorie Taylor green or something. Somebody said on Fox or something, somebody said on, on one American network or something like that going, look what they're saying now. And it's important for ideological cohesiveness, this constant feeding of this beast. It has a very, it is very effective in keeping people on your side. Cause anytime your, your mind might open up to the possibility right. <laughs> that something is otherwise you and we have this experience you are snapped right back into yep. those people are bad and dangerous and anything they say i can't trust even if they tell you 
you know, even if they tell you that you ask them what to, you know, whether it's 75 degrees outside and they say, yes, don't trust them. They've got an ulterior motive. They want you to go out and be rained on because they hate you. Um, and it's fascinating because it's also been successful. This is part, part of what I, or at least in terms of the media, <clears throat> this incredible decline, this collapse in ad revenue, the fact that the Washington Post sold for 250 the most valuable media property on earth for 30 years in some ways, maybe next to the New York Times, sold for a flat $250 million to Jeff Bezos. Pocket, you know, like quarters out of his pocket. And then things shifted. And in the last five years, they to the extent that Axios, which is an online newsletter company, sold for twice what the Washington Post sold for seven years earlier, has sold for $525 million. Why? Because that weaponization of anger proved unexpectedly successful. Howell Raines, the editor of the New York Times in 2002, said, I want 10 million subscribers, and I want this to be the leading newspaper across the country. He ended up losing his job soon after because of a because of a scandal involving a reporter. But at the time, people like me and everybody said, "You're crazy! You're a crazy person. What are you talking about? Ten million? First of all, you don't need ten million. Second of all, why would anybody in Topeka, Kansas, care what you have to say about the racist, com, com, you know, about the racism at the Masters tournament, which was one of his obsessions? Like." Get it, get away from yourself. But the New York Times now has 7 million online subscribers. And all of this was set into motion in some sense, or wasn't set into motion, but Trump apotheosized it. And here we are, and you have these, you have this world of media companies that has found the secret sauce. I got in the business in 1982. I started, I became a manager at the Washington Times in 1984. I started going to focus groups and meetings of, you know, industry bigwigs and having our own focus groups and everything. And the idea was that we were on the verge, we were the Roman Empire in like 450. Sure, things were fine now, but by 516, we were going to be gone. And we better do things to to stop this. And, you know, this world where people always say it's so hidebound and all this, they did unbelievably inventive things constantly that cost enormous amounts of money trying to figure out how to get ahead of the technological revolution that was going to kill the print paper. And very inventive. But the technology couldn't keep up with, like consumer technology couldn't keep up. You could get your paper electronically, but you only had 3,600 baud and you couldn't download it. It would take you an hour to read it, right? but 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 it was also true that by the time the internet came along, and it was really, it's really interesting, you can go through and see where um, Craigslist killed newspapers. Yeah. Yes, like, thank and, you, thank you. That was yes, uh, as Craig, early as 2000, yeah. Little tiny Craigslist walked into your market and all of a sudden, because remember, the classified ads don't just produce revenue, they produce readership. If yeah. you're in a business where you need to know what's in the classified ads or you're reading the ads or yeah. whatever. Um, but the fall off in literacy and newspaper consumption had already started right in the 70s because we became television zombies and one of the things that amazed me the most 
television viewership in the United States did not peak on a household average until 2009, 2010, when it was almost nine hours a day. Yeah. The arrival of cable and the profusion, what was the old Dire Straits songs, uh, 57 channels and nothing on? Well, that was that, uh, was, that was Springsteen, but yeah. Was that Springsteen? Yeah. Uh, but the profusion of all of these media options that people had never, ever had before, we really became TV zombies in a right. huge way through the 1990s. Right. And the other amazing thing is, News that it wasn't until 2005. So when I came into the newspaper business, and I still think of my, I'm sure it comes the corniness comes through in the book. But I, when I think of who I am and what kind of journalist I am, I am a small market newspaper journalist. That's how I think of myself. I have gotten to do all this cool. See, I'm stuff. a big market newspaper journalist whose papers always lost money. That's the difference yeah. <laughs> between the two of us. I never worked for anything that made money. And you worked for places that made money, but were in small markets. So the, this is the anyway. Go ahead. And so, so the the um, experience of these publications and the and so think about it this way: S- local media, the newspaper business had gotten incredibly over leveraged. I entered it at the last days of the Raj. Uh, the profits were shocking and huge, and as you say, John. They were funding these, like, how are we going to attract young readers to read the newspaper? And I'm like, yeah. no, you won't. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But the all of this spending and all of this stuff, they were so over leveraged because you could borrow unlimited sums of money to buy a newspaper because you were basically guaranteed 25% profit. So we had all this conglomeration yeah. that went on around the country with these massive media spaces. What happened when the internet showed up? And as the final, the final boss that the newspaper industry was going to have to face, and what, what, how did they respond? They cut. They did the exactly wrong thing. Yeah. Instead of saying we have the content, we are awesome, they slash newsroom slash newsroom slash newsroom. What stepped into the void post two thousand and five? Let's say, what stepped into the void was what national political news because there's just not enough national news. You were right about Hal Raines uh, and Hal Raines' other real, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, this is a family podcast. Uh, unfortunate theory uh, was uh, the flood the zone idea. We're really only just going to do one story at a time and we're going to throw all of our reporters at this one story and saturation about it. It's like the CNN effect, right? Everything, there's only one story a day and now all of media is this way. There's just a couple narratives and we can't afford anymore. But what stepped in was national political news because there's just not that much national news that connects people where they are. Politics, national politics is the only thing that really there's stickiness to. So if you want to be a national political organization and you want to be able to talk to people in Oregon as well as Florida, uh, talking about how the president is Satan uh, or how the republic is about to fall uh, is about what you've got. Can I can I add about yeah. the Craigslist point real quick? Because this is really important, and Chris's book does this very well. There are so many interesting structural background stories to how we got to say to Trump and to current cable news, um, because when he waltzed in, the ground was already ready for him. I mean, it had been seeded and fertilized, and I don't know. We're using all these seeding metaphors today, so I'm adding to them. But Craigslist is the is perfect for a number of reasons. One, it hollowed out the financial base for all of these local newspapers, the classified ads, as Chris mentioned. But it also was, it gave us a glimpse. If you if you notice 
existed at the time and not a lot of people did. It gave us a glimpse of what the internet promised versus what human nature does with the internet. And by that, I mean, Craigslist original, uh, uh, one of its taglines was people helping people because it was a free service. You know, look, it's just people connecting. It's so great. Of course, what it turned into was a wild internet prostitution service site where you could go <laughs> and find an escort in five minutes and also maybe a plumber. But, you know, really it was going to be, but that's what human nature does in that kind of um, completely ungovernable space. It creates incentives for often for the worst sort of behavior. And in a way, it was a t in microcosm what happened with cable news, where the incentives became, as human nature would understand, and as uh, perfectly well devised and engineered by social media companies came to understand, you know, it's the old what it's not just if it bleeds, it leads, which was the old local television news idea. It was if it re if you react, it's good. And the reaction is all that matters. And fear, anger, disgust, those are the things that people react more violently to than even cute puppies frolicking in a nice meadow. Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the, I remember when I first felt a huge shift in um, how people approached news. And uh, for me, it was around 9-11 <clears throat> and the Iraq War. Um, I got the distinct... Suddenly I realized people were... They were reading the papers. They were watching the news. But then if they didn't like what they were hearing, this is when they, they, they started to go hunting for the stories they wanted. They wanted about it. And, and, and they suddenly all and, and they had options. All these there was this sort of marketplace um, online for what if uh, you don't want to hear that. Come here. We'll, 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 we'll give you this. You want to hear that. And that sort of never has gone away. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So my friend. Um... Former colleague Richard Starr also worked with Christine, uh, who was the uh, uh, deputy editor of the of the Weekly Standard for many years. In 2004, if people remember, so around the middle of September, polls in the Kerry Bush race were turning against Bush, and uh, and I mean it was very close. It was always very close, but sort of Kerry was sort of up a couple points or something like that. Uh, except for one pollster, and that was Rasmussen. I'm not talking about Rasmussen, Rasmussen as Rasmussen is now. But Rasmussen, Scott Rasmussen, this yeah. was Scott Rasmussen, um, who had a who had a who had a different kind of polling model. He then sold the company. It's now become a kind of partisan player. So this is a different time. But the Rasmussen poll uh, was more favorable in general to Bush than it was to Kerry. So, I don't know, two weeks before the election, there's this big late hit story, if people remember, about a gun depot in Iraq being left open and the Al-Qaqa gun depot and guns being stolen by the rep, by, by the uh, Iraqi, you know, resistors or whatever. And look, we were, we were so bad at this that we were supplying the weapons to, to the Saddamist forces to shoot our own people with. And it, this was supposed to be the story that was going to take Bush down. It turned out to be much more vague, but the polls turned even worse or something like that. And Richard one day called me and he was like, I don't know, Gallup came out with a poll every day. Remember? One o'clock. Yeah, yeah. The Gallup drop, every daily Gallup drop at one o'clock. So he calls me at like one four, and he was like, I need a Rasmussen poll. <laughs> somebody get me a Rasmussen poll like that because that was sort of like this very 
specific thing that was happening where you didn't like this. If you were a Democrat, wait for the PPP poll. That was going to make you feel good. Zogby. North Carolina. Zogby's, co- Zogby's coming Zogby. for you guys. Zogby's Don't worry, coming. John Zogby's right. going to deliver yeah. so, uh, the it, greatest victory in yeah. Democratic history. And that those were supposed to be objective. Talk about the thing that is actually supposed to be an objective measure. If the if forget you know, bias or whatever. The whole point about polling is that that was supposed to remove all of that kind of human frailty. You're telling from, me about this? Yeah, I know you. people in the world, I know, you're telling I'm not me telling you. about this? I, I, I right. Okay. <laughs> so, so Chris, I'm not going to, I would rehearse your, the, 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 the preposterous nature of your separation from Fox after, uh, after the 20, 20 election. Um, but it is interesting that as I was sort of getting to the 2015 or something like that, the 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 coalescence of the you can get your own news where you want it, and the creation of these Washington companies, mm-hmm. Axios, uh, we'd already had, you know, um the repurposing of the hill, the hill, uh, and then whatever as reclaim Vox. And the, and then and then the newspapers followed them. The weird thing is that the journalistic institutions that had been around for a hundred years and had set the standard for not only profitability but how you were supposed to be a journalist—the Post, the Times, all of that—they were like, "We need to be more like them." Our mistake is that we're being us. We need to be more like them. New York Times hires hundreds of 25-year-olds who then say that, you know, Barry Weiss is, you know, a danger to them personally (laughs) and she publishes an op-ed they don't like. You know, but that was the kind of mentality was, let's go get them, we'll become them, CNN becomes them, and Fox Mm -hmm. becomes the not them. And I have always wondered, because all these things coalesce together, so... Fox in 2015, 2016 was, of course, not a Trump network, right? Uh, Megyn Kelly was the focus of Trump's ire because she asked him a question about his misogyny at the first The, the most debate. obvious question possible for right. a potential Republican nominee who's likely to face a female yeah. candidate. Right. And Roger Ailes, not yet, you know, disgraced and run, run out of town on a rail, had had a history of pulling the network back when he thought that it was going too far for in sure. the populist extreme. He fired Glenn Beck when Glenn Beck had the number one show on cable television. You know, he he created this show, The Five, to take Glenn Beck's place and then told everybody whom he hired, like, if you go too far, don't worry, I got someone right behind you, can take your yep. place. Um, he had this... And he had Charles Krauthammer. You mentioned Krauthammer. Krauthammer was the biggest star on Fox. Who was Charles? Charles was an opinion columnist, Washington Post, wrote for, uh, wrote for, you know, was an old dear friend of mine. And he sat there as a kind of sage in, you know, and sort of opined, but he opined from this, yeah, I'm conservative, but, I, uh, you know, uh, some of these people are crazy. And he was the biggest star on Fox. Imagine if we could imagine a world in which what happened to Ailes or what Ailes did to himself, however you want to slice it, didn't happen. Yeah. Do you think Fox would have happened and that what happened to Fox would have happened anyway? 
You know, it's it's funny, and this is conjecture on my part, so I want to be careful. But I think that Ailes's personal, uh, uh, deep, uh, twisted personal problems made him more vulnerable to Trump because he had he was obvious in hindsight. It was obvious that he was reaching the end of his tether. Right, uh, the Gabriel Sherman book that was coming out. Roger had been terrified, like totally focused on this book, and we're like, why are you so? What what do you care about this book so much? And then the book came out and it didn't have anything new in it. It was like Fox is bad, Roger Ailes is mean. Okay, like yeah, we knew that that's what you thought, Gabe Sherman. So that's okay. But what we didn't know was that Roger was afraid that that's what Sherman was going to get. That he yeah. was running the sex dungeons or whatever. So the uh, he was already attrited in his strength right. had already been attrited by the time Trump, who is uh, a a blackmailer, a leaner honor, a squeezer, uh, that Roger was pretty right pickings for him, I would imagine. And plus that would help, uh, the, uh, was also caught because, uh, the Murdoch's were thrilled. Rupert was obviously pleased that Roger Ailes, who had kept him out of his own company for all of these years, right? Roger, who had said, no one may touch Fox except for me. Only I can do only I, El Coro can do it. Uh, that uh, this was finally going to break through. It's been so interesting doing media for this book um, because obviously most people who want to talk to you about your book don't read your book. Uh, Commentary reads your book because commentary is living proof that a publication or an outlet can have a point of view and continue to be fair, that that is a thing that can be done, that can be big-hearted, patriotic, and fair-minded. So that's uh, my I love commentary plug. But going and talking to these places, I'm not going to say who, but um, uh, right before the book came out, the New York Times wrote up a piece on my book. Thank you. It was it was good and it was accurate, uh, but it obviously went through and took out all of the parts of the book that were about what was wrong at Fox News. Fox News editor, blah. So <laughs> you're doing some interviews that I did and many that I have declined where, you know, they're like, come on to my show and trash Fox. I'm so excited that you're finally ready to tell the truth about Fox. And you're like, Oh, and in some cases it's even a person who I have condemned in the book itself, that in the pages of the book, I have condemned the journalistic practices of, and they're like powerful book. I am so moved by your powerful book by which I mean the 800-word story I read about it in the New York Times. Please come on and share your truth. And you're like, oh, that's great. But no, no, I don't think it will help my book about how uh, brain-dead partisanship siloing in the media uh, by going on a brain-dead partisan siloed show uh, so I can talk about how bad other people are. And that is really what I don't like about most media criticism, because most media criticism is simply a tool to confirm the biases of the audience. Right. We you gentle readers. Right. Uh, When the Washington Post runs a piece about how bad Fox is, what is what is the post also saying? The post is saying not like you, not like you, good people. You are the good people. They are the bad people. And the post really uh, certainly the 1619 project is uh, everything. Everything that anybody's ever said about Tucker Carlson is just as true about the 1619 Project. Divisive, destructive, anti, like anti-American specifically, 
and robbing us of a common culture with, with the, where the goal is to rob us of a common culture and history. The Washington Post is, and I say it every week with your friend Eliana Johnson at some point on Inkstained Wretches, America's worst big city newspaper. It went from being kind of like, ah, like the Post is like, ah, it's okay, it's kind of weak a little bit. It, it felt a little dishraggy uh, under the previous regime. And then it just got aggressively dumb and aggressively clickbaity. And when you look at what the Post is, and, and this, I, I have friends who work at the Post. There's great journalism going on at the Post. They're foreign, the, you know, what they're willing to spend to put people around the globe to cover stories and do all that stuff. But man, what's moving up the leaderboard at the Post uh, sure ain't uh, uh, deeply thought out journalism. It's patched to it. It involves stories that uh, say things like twi Twitter blew up and you're like, okay, well, moving on. Thanks much. Well, and can I just add that as a local, I've moved to DC in 1995. I've been a subscriber to the Post ever since. I always subscribe to whatever the local paper is. It's a terrible local paper. Like you actually Awful. have to go to other sources to find out about a crime that occurred two blocks from your house. It's it's my it's first so newspaper job in Washington was at the Washington Examiner, where I was not just the political editor, but also the Maryland suburb, like covering the the reporters covering the Maryland suburbs, and the Washington Post disdain for having to be a local paper. Like, uh, I guess we have I guess we have to talk about the extension of the silver line, but we're going to find a way to make it about like intersectionality. But or, you know, that it's just like Watergate, right? Yeah. It had to be yes, Watergate. Exactly, or... <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, that, that there's an interesting angle there, which is that um, uh, Jeff Bezos, I, you know, probably now doesn't live anywhere. But I mean, he lived in Seattle, right? That's am I right about that? That's where Amazon was, was in Seattle. Yeah. OK, yeah, I think that's right. So. You know, a lot of people lived in Seattle. Bill Gates lived in Seattle. Paul Allen, who was Bill Gates' partner, lived in Seattle. Paul Allen left Microsoft relatively early and became the king of Seattle. He bought the Supersonics, bought a paper. He was this. He did a lot of local philanthropy, right? Classic newspaper ownership is somebody in the city has been reading the paper mm -hmm. since they were a kid, gets hugely rich, decides they want the paper, and like has the paper, and they actually are interested in the city that the paper is in. And Jeff Bezos never lived in Washington, isn't a creature of Washington, and he is the sole proprietor of the paper. And it would have been the role of a normal billionaire buyer of that paper to probably strengthen local coverage. Like, that's the odd part, because what they want is to be king of the town. They want, to, they want to have the town fall at their feet because this is where they came from and this is what they had. Or they moved there, like Rupert, when he bought the New York Post, moved to New York and what and ran the New York Post from New York. His media empire was based in, he had to move, regrettably in his own state, he had to move to LA when they bought the network because, oh, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. because that was Machiavelli's you know, rule was you have to move there if you're going to be the mercenary army taking over taking over the city you can't do it from from a distance and so bezos is a weird example you go through in the book the hollowing out of local newspapers everywhere uh which has a understandable financial root there's a reason why it all happened and it's all very explicable but the classic pattern was a guy wants the local newspaper 
And yeah. he is kind of willing to subsidize it, making less money than it might otherwise make because of the inestimable personal benefits that accrue to him as the proprietor of the leading news source. And when that severed, when Gannett in particular bought hundreds of newspapers across the country and Alan Newhart, who was running Gannett, was living somewhere else and they had to fire five people to make budget, what did he care whether those people were covering the school board right. or, you know, or, or, or were covering malfeasance at City Hall? That wasn't in his, that wasn't what he wanted. He didn't want to keep the city honest. He was looking for profit margins that would support the company and its stock price on, on Wall Street. And we do have this very weird situation now. Then even the New York, New York Times is like this. That's, of course, the Salzburger family. They've been in New York for 150 years. Last night, I went on the Times website by mistake. Here's what was my mistake. I didn't know what the Yankees score had been that day. And I was already there doing spelling bee or something like that. So I go to the sports page, which does not have a story about the Yankees game. Come on. There is no story about the Yankees game on the New York Times's sports page on its website. No story about the Yankees game. Now, if I go to Google, I type in Yankee yeah. and I click search. The first thing that comes up is the box score of the Yankees game. But the local paper of New York doesn't have a story or the box score or even a running box score or anything. And the Yankees are in first place <laughs> and they're getting worse. And so things are getting, it is fascinating. The severance of local news from an understanding of what news is, which is all news ever was. Right. Really until World War II. Well, you, you, and again, not to keep praising your book, because you don't need that. Like your head is already pretty swell. I'm, let's face it. I, I'm, I mean, it, it's my head started this size. But, so this but, is, but this is you, not, this is just genetics. Yeah. But you fat, you do something very original in this book, which is that you, you center the creation of a national news story atmosphere to um, a dust storm in 1935. And so the confluence of the technology that made faxing photographs uh, nationally and reporters being able to get on the phone to call in a story to the AP Bureau from Boise City, having themselves been caught in the middle of this dust storm, created the Dust Bowl, created the national understanding that there was this massive drought uh, in the Midwest, and that farming had destroyed arable land in the you know in in the Midwest and all this, and that that was the first national news story. And of course, there had been other there you know trials of the century and stuff like that. Sure, sure, sure. But um, so if you think about that, like that's a local thing that happens that then people go, oh my god, that's happening in my own country, and I didn't even know that it was going on. And Somebody's got to do something. The big difference was that it started the news cycle. So right. previously, it took a long time. The 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 news of Lindbergh landing in Paris, right? If you lived in Kankakee, it wasn't like, oh, I just got a notification, uh, Charles Lindbergh. No, it took two. It, imagine the time it took to get the photographs from Lindbergh's landing 
shipped by ship back across the atlas. So the part of what keeps our cortisol levels so high with the news is it feels immediate, right? So the Dust Bowl, what set the Dust Bowl apart from what had come before it was for the first time in human history, the words and the pictures could arrive at the same time within the same day, right? So this was this terrible, it was uh, a Good Friday, I think, uh, 1935, and the horror, right? Just a 800-foot-tall black wall of dirt roaring through. And this is after people have already been enjoying this. It's a nightmare scenario. Gripping images, a mountain of dirt rolling in on a little town. So you can finally, for the first time, have the image and the words arrive at the same time, thanks to the telegraph and then the telephone, the ability to send images across the country. So that really, to me, begins the new cycle where it's like, one of the things that we need as humans is the sensation of being done, right? Okay, I read the paper, I read the news, I consumed the news, I watched the evening news, and now I have finished reading the news and am going on with the rest of my day. But if you're a person who really wants to stay up to date, the I guess one of the, the cardinal sins here is the exploitation of a good impulse, which is to be a good citizen and be well-informed. And you are obliged as an American. You know, we owe special obligations as journalists to the Constitution uh, to, you know, there is no American journalism without Americanism. So we owe special obligations. But every American has a special debt that they have to pay that, you know, a million people uh, died in wars uh, in order to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So you better... Uh, if all you're eating is, you know, Glenn Beck junk food chips, uh, you you owe the rest of us a little something more. But to exploit the desire, the healthy desire of people to be informed about the world around them, to exploit that by uh, constantly tweaking at their nose, little bite, little bite, little bite all day, then they feel like they never caught up. They feel like they never got to the end of anything. And that each, and you know, you talk, I know you've talked to people on the right and the left exhausted, and this is especially true of older Americans uh, who may feel isolated in other ways, are exhausted at the end of each day about all the stuff that's going on. And you're like, you want, you should go relive 1970 to 1975, right? How is that? How is that, right? And how would cable news have covered that? Yeah, how even. would Twitter have covered? The, yeah. So like 1100 like, bombings in the, in the domestic United States. Imagine exactly. a world with Twitter and 1100 bombings like you yes, can. exactly anyway Chris it's fantastic to have you on we're running really long everybody go buy Chris's book broken news read his newsletter star worldisms listen to his podcast with Eliana Inkstain wretches which comes out on Friday and he and he and Christine can now go off into their corner with Yuval and rub their hands gleefully <laughs> at the at the at I'm the doing it right now. at the intellectual <laughs> property <laughs> theft staged by the American Enterprise Institute. Um, anyway, broken news, great book. Uh, Noel will be back on Thursday for uh, for Christine and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.